Okay, y'all, let's turn in our Bibles to Job chapter 8. If you have your bulletin, it's in the back of the bulletin. As we do, uh, I'm going to ask us to pray for one more thing. Uh, John Dykstra is going to be heading down to Houston to get a very important report. And uh, we're going to, uh, you're leaving tomorrow, John, is that right, Yvonne? Today? Okay. So let's pray for that report. Let's pray for God's good purposes. Oh, Lord, we do um, continue to lift before you John and Yvonne. It's our desire, Lord, that this will be a good report, and it's our desire that um, you heal him. We pray for the doctors, and we pray for this consultation, and we ask that um, it would be uh, accurate, it would be with full knowledge, it would be a clear direction, uh, and it would be um, wrought through with your comfort and your presence and your nearness. So, Lord, be with them as they drive down tonight and these next two days. May you um, exalt your amazing grace uh, in their lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, Andrew Sue in the October World Magazine. Those of you who get October or get the World Magazine, she wrote about uh, a couple named Scott and Janet Willis. And... Scott and Janet Willis and their six children were driving down Interstate uh, 94 in Illinois when a piece of uh, metal fell off the truck, punctured the gas tank, and immediately generated a, uh, ignited a ball of fire that surrounded and engulfed uh, their minivan. Scott and Janet somehow miraculously survived, though burned over most of their body, though their six children did not. Um, as they were being loaded into separate ambulances... Uh, with the full knowledge that they had lost their six children. Um, Scott called out to his wife and said, uh, it was very quick. Uh, They've gone to be with the Lord, honey. Psalm 34. Uh, Janet later said that those were the best things, best words he could have said to her. Uh, That was 17 years ago. Andrea had just recently met them at a conference, and this is what she said after meeting this couple. She said, what a privilege to meet someone to whom the Lord entrusted so much suffering. Uh, That's the book of Job. What a privilege for us to gaze upon someone whom the Lord had entrusted so much suffering. Uh, The book of Job is here to transform our view of suffering, right? We saw chapters one through three transformed our view of God in light of suffering, right? When we suffer, we tend to pick away at either God's power or his love and his goodness. Uh, We might start picking away at his power like this. We believe that God is good and we believe that he's loving. So if suffering and pain exist and we're holding on to his goodness and his love, We'll start picking away at his power because if he's good and he's loving when suffering and pain exist, he must not be able to do something about it. So we pick away at his power. 
we also might pick away at his goodness and his love. So we actually, we believe in his power, that he's all powerful, that he's king. We believe that. And we believe that um, suffering and pain exist. And he must not be good, though, and loving for suffering and pain to exist if he's all-powerful. Because if he's all-powerful, he can do something about it, and he doesn't, right? So we have looked at, and what Job has transformed in chapters 1 through 3 is that uh, he's both. He's both all-powerful, and he's both all-loving and all-good, even when we suffer. Well, now when we get to the three friends, we're actually turning the corner and and taking another angle at suffering and another angle at pain. And the three friends actually are introducing it and Bildad the most, which we're going to look at today. He's actually bringing in uh, an angle that has been ancient and an angle that is stamped and embedded into the human heart since the beginning of time, since the fall of Adam. And that's this suffering and pain exist because God is punishing the guilty. God is punishing the sinner. God is punishing the poor in piety. God is punishing those with a bad performance. So Job 8 seeks to transform that view. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy... Now, don't be confused by that word mercy. That, that word there is referring to the just reward of if you seek. So it's not referring to a mercy that's coming out in an otherworldly favor and overwhelming generosity in light of demerit or not earning it. Okay? Sometimes we get thrown off with that. If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words out of their understanding? And then he goes through and he continues with uh, the support of tradition. And then in verse 20 through 22, he has this awkward ending of awkward cheer, which doesn't match kind of the tone of the rest of the chapter. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. So, Lord, we ask that you would bless your word. We thank you that you, uh, you are the author, Jesus, and finisher of our faith. And so our, our lives are in your hands. Uh, you are our only comfort in life and in death. And so good kind shepherd shepherd our hearts even now through the staff of your word and we ask this in Jesus name amen alright y'all you're going to have to bear with me I'm going to have to keep drinking my throat is kind of on fire alright think of Job's three friends 
This is the way I want you to think of them. I want you to think of them as one lump of coal with several different cuts on that coal. Now, normally, you know, I usually use a diamond. One diamond with beautiful, uh, radiant slivers and cuts in the diamond, but these friends are not diamond. They're not a diamond. They're a lump of coal. So I want you to think of one lump of coal. They all share the same worldview. They all share the same theology, working theology and beliefs. They all share the same lens of interpreting reality. We could call it uh, the earthly lens, which we have earlier. Or we could call it wisdom from below, which the scriptures talk about later. Uh, They all have the same view. Uh, However, they all emphasize a slightly different angle to that same view. For instance, we saw Eliphaz. What did he emphasize? He emphasized uh, his religious experience. So we were calling Eliphaz the mystic, right? His religious experience wasn't just a religious experience for its sake. It was a religious experience was the way in which he tried to control his world. So it was the way in which he tried to control his relationship with God, his own personal life, his relationships with others, and in particularly suffering and pain. All right. Now today we hear from Bildad. And so he's a different angle on the same lump of coal. We've got to ask ourselves, how is Bildad trying to control his life? How does Bildad try to connect with God, with himself, with others, with his world, with evil and suffering? How does Bildad try to gain the good life and avoid disaster? That's the question of chapter 8. Okay? All right. Uh, Ed Welch uh, has respun Chicken Little. Everybody know who Chicken Little is? Okay. He's respun him in a book that he wrote recently called Running Scared. And Chicken Little thought what? The sky's falling, right? And he didn't have special revelation that told him the sky was falling. He just felt it. He just had this sense of impending doom that the sky would fall. Now, he didn't know when it was happened, but he was certain that it would happen, right? Uh, We think that Chicken Little uh, is foolish, right? Because we know that the sky doesn't fall. Uh, But Ed Welch says there's a Chicken Little in all of us, though. He said, quote, Chicken Little was the children's version of the thousands of doomsday prophets that have predicted that the end is near and it won't be pretty. Now, that might not be you. You might not be following the billboards that were up recently this spring. But this could be you. Chicken Little is also the poster chicken for everyone who senses worry and anxiety but can't quite locate its source. It's as if we have done something wrong and mom says, wait till your father gets home. Bildad is the poster chicken for worry and anxiety. Bildad's world is filled with worry and anxiety. Why? Look at verses 3 through 7. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy... If you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself and restore you to your rightful habitation. So what we have here is Bildad's world is filled with worry and anxiety because Bildad's world is the world of traditional religion. 
He states it real clear in verse 3. He says, God is just. God does not bend justice. With God, there is no crooked right. Do you see what he's saying? God is just. So he doesn't bend justice. With him, there's no crooked right. It's always straight. Justice is always sure. All right? Now, this means that a good performance always produces prosperity, and a bad performance always produces pain. If a good performance produced pain, that would be a crooked justice. If a bad performance produced prosperity, that would be a bent justice. Do you see what he's doing? And then what he does is he goes on and he applies it to Job's kids. So he takes traditional religion and he applies it to Job's children. In verse 4, right? If your children have sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hands of their transgression. I mean, Job, your children got what they deserved. Your children were not innocent. Your children were messed up. Your children had poor piety. Right? Now in verses 5 through 7, Bildad applies traditional religion to Job. He's a little more hopeful. He says, Job, if you return to a good performance, God will justly reward you with prosperity. Do you see what he's saying? Now, it might be a little confusing what's going on in those verses 5 through 7. Verse 6 is just the result of verse 5. So you look at verse 6. Job must become pure and upright. In other words, he needs to return to a good performance. Well, how does he do that? Well, verse 5 answers that. Seek God. In other words, return to God. Return to God. Plead for mercy. If you return to God, he will reward you justly with your performance. So Bildad, here's the catch. Bildad believes that Job has cursed God somewhere in some place. In other words, cursing is not a string of profanities in the Old Testament. To curse God means to walk away from him in some area of your life or globally in your whole area of your life. It means to replace him with something else in an area of your life or in the whole direction and focus of your life. And so Bildad believes that Job has cursed God, done that someplace, somewhere in his life. Now remember, at the beginning of the story, that's what the Satan was after. That was his goal. That was his goal from the very beginning with Job's suffering was to get him to walk away from God, to replace him, right? And Job vehemently is denying that he's done so. So then in verse 8 through 19, Bildad supports traditional religion. How? By the authority of tradition. So Bildad is basically saying, come on, Job, everyone believes this. Since the beginning of time, it's been the driving doctrine and driving energy of the human heart. Joe, you get what you deserve. Good performance, prosperity. Bad performance, pain. Eliphaz supported his position with religious experience. Bildad supports his position with tradition. The community of ideas, 
the common general knowledge that everyone has had in every generation and in every human heart since the beginning of time. All right, here's how Bildad's world works. Traditional religion relates to God in terms of fear of punishment and hope of reward. Now remember, this is exactly what the Satan was accusing Job of relating to God by. So traditional religion is the theology of the Satan. It's his theology. It's his working theology. He's basically saying, look, Job trusts not in you, God. He trusts in your gifts. He puts his hope. He puts his identity. He puts his security. He puts his sense of self. He puts his whole good life and well-being and his avoidance of disaster in your gifts, not in you. Traditional religion does the exact same thing. In other words, traditional religion says you connect with God and you connect with a good life and you avoid disaster by a good performance. So in other words, those who, uh, who feel most loved by God, those who feel most connected to Him, those who feel most favored and accepted, those who feel like their lives are most significant and secure and most significantly used by God are those who have and those who are spiritually successful. Those who feel least loved by God, least connected to Him, least favored and least secure and more anxious and more fearful are those who are spiritually challenged in their relationship with God in life. So in other words, if you connect with God and His blessing by a good performance, then the most successful people in society spiritually, morally, relationally, socially, materially, the most successful people are those closest to God. The most successful people are where all the action is. The most successful people is where we know God is at work. The most successful people and the most successful places are where things are happening. It's where God is blessing the most. And so you can write a book when you're in that position and everyone reads it. You get all the leadership posts. You become an elder or a leader in the church. You become nationally recognized and influential. If you connect with God and his blessings by a good performance, God is working through those who are most successful, not the outcast and not the failure in this world. Okay? Now, traditional religion relates to God by good performance. Traditional religion also relates to uh, one's person's personal identity. In other words, how you find your worth and value and your meaning and purpose in life, your significance in life. Traditional religion relates to how you do that in terms of proving yourself, in terms of establishing or trying to secure your own worth and value, in terms of justifying your existence. So it looks like this. This is the world of chicken little. This is the world of anxiety and fear because this is the world of a struggle, of constant struggle, of the success-failure conflict. And so you're in this struggle with life and with yourself and this 
dynamic of trying to prove yourself and, and have success or failure and everything hangs on success or failure because you are your performance. You are a good performance and you are a bad performance. So you are a good mom or a bad mom. You are your career. You are. You're not just trying to get tenure. You are tenure. You are your career. You don't just perform athletically and enjoy the gifts God's given you. You are athletic, musical, artistic abilities and talents and performance. All right? You don't just interact with people and love them and and certainly get their acceptance and their love, which we're commanded to give to each other, but you become a person's approval and applause or disapproval, right? So traditional religion relates to a person's identity in terms of you got to earn it. You got to secure your own, all right? Now, the other thing that traditional religion does, it relates to suffering pain in terms of blame and shame. So if there's suffering and pain in your life, you've blown it somewhere. If there's suffering and pain in someone else's life, They've blown it somewhere. So let's take, for instance, Susie. I think I keep using her, but it's not anybody in the church. Susie, let's say she was sexually abused as a teenager. Her conversations with herself might possibly go like this. I'm to blame. I didn't fight hard enough. I'm to blame. I was then, and I am now, not a good enough Christian. Something's wrong with me because it happened to me. I'm damaged goods. I am abuse. Now, Susie might do the same thing if she comes from a broken home, those same kind of conversations. She might do the same thing if she comes, if kids are cruel to her at school or cruel to her at church, she might have those same conversations. She might do it when she grows up and she gets married and her husband abuses her or leaves her. She might have those same conversations, right? Now, let's talk about Charlie. Charlie shows up in your small group and Charlie, uh, you learn a couple weeks later, is divorced, So you might have conversations with yourself like this. It takes two to tango. Right? I wonder what's going on in his life. He's got to be broken and messed up in a real way somewhere. It could never happen to me. Now, we might do the same thing if we find out Charlie struggles with depression. We might do the same thing if Charlie struggles with same-sex desires. We might do the same thing if we find out he gets fired or he doesn't get tenure. We might do the same thing if Charlie has a child that leaves the church. 
Traditional religion does not have a category for innocent people suffering. Traditional religion does not have a category for life not working for a normal person who trusts God. Traditional religion does not have a category for Job. All right, there's one other thing that traditional religion relates to others. If you look at, well, let's look at how to build that related to Job. Traditional religion relates to others in terms of little love. I mean, let's look at uh, verse 2. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? In other words, the Bible is clear throughout its pages from beginning to end that whatever we believe, it shapes who we are. So whatever we behold, that's what we become. Now, it's not just talking about a raw, rational understanding of data. It's beliefs in terms of understanding it and entering into it with a covenantal reality, trusting it, embracing it. Internally, it's your beliefs. Now, when that happens, when we believe, whatever we believe, we become. So what Bildad has become because a traditional religion is angry. He's an angry person. He's angry at Job. Job just gets done speaking and he's like, how long? How long are you gonna how long are you gonna talk like this, Job? But he's also not just angry. Traditional religion creates cold people. I mean look at verse four. If your children have sinned against him, man, he's delivered them into the hands of their transgression. Only a cold person could say something like that to someone who just lost all their children. Now, even if he's right, say his kids got intoxicated, got into a car and got in a car wreck and they all died. Even if he's right, which he's not in this case, Because we know, again, from the heavenly lens, that it was the Satan's hammers of doom that did this. Nothing to do with the kid's performance or not. Right? But even if he's right, he's wrong. Bildad has broken the law written in every human heart and in every work of creation and every person from the beginning of time till now. And it's before the written law is given. But they have this. It's written on every human heart, and creation says it over and over again to everybody who listens. Love God, love others. Bildad's world is angry and cold. There's no compassion. There's no kindness. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no color. Only you get what you deserve. So here's the point. Little love gets us to the point of Job 8. And this is the point of traditional religion. And this is the point of Bildad, the moralist. Traditional religion avoids God too. Who's his other conversation partner? Well, his other conversation partner is the irreligious person. Bildad talks about that person in verse 13, the person who forgets God. Verse 13, the godless person. Verse 20, the evildoer. Verse 22, the wicked. The irreligious person is those people. Traditional religion 
avoids God just as much as they do. Because traditional religion, irreligion, might trust in pleasing yourself in your pleasures and emotional, physical comfort and in whatever the irreligious objects could be. Career, right? Recognition, status, money, sexual sin, whatever it is. But traditional religion trusts in performance and achievement and success and a good record. Traditional religion avoids God too. All right. Look at verse 2 again. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? Most folks seem to take that as like he's being sarcastic, like, Job, you're blowing hot air. When are you going to stop? You know, you're a windmill of nothing. No, no substance coming out of your mouth. Uh, I think the more accurate translation or the more accurate interpretation is that he's not angry. I mean, he's not sarcastic. He's angry. In other words, it's your words are destructive like a tornado. Why are Job's words so destructive like a tornado? Because Job's world threatens and destroys Bildad's world. Because Job lives in a completely different world than Bildad or the irreligious person. Bildad's world is a third world, a third way of reality, a third way of looking, a third way of living, a third way of walking, a third way of connecting with God, a third way of finding your identity, a third way of gaining the good life, a third way of keeping disaster at bay, a third way of relating to your suffering and your pain, a third way of community and relationships. It's a whole other way. You know what's fascinating? Is that in chapter 1, we find Job rising early in the morning to offer burnt sacrifices for himself and for his family. There was a sacrifice and a burnt offering that secured forgiveness of sins. In other words, it was the sacrifice of another that brought forgiveness of sins to Job and his family. It was the atonement of a substitutionary sacrifice that made him right with God. It was the suffering of a God-appointed servant that was spotless and blameless 
that gave him a righteousness and a blamelessness and a connection with God that never goes away. Job lived in a third world where you get what you don't deserve. And where you don't get what you do deserve. Where you get overwhelming, generous, extravagant, scandalous, shocking grace. Now, Job relates to God, relates to himself, and relates to everything in his life in light of this grace, in light of the sacrifice back in chapter 1. So if, if Bildad would just reread chapter 1 and see the sacrifice of another securing for people who don't deserve it, the bounty of heaven, he'd change. Connecting with God based on his performance would get replaced with a connection with God on the performance of another. Solid confidence. Solid closeness with God. Whether you're successful a failure. He'd get that the success-failure struggle going on within him would stop because there was a sacrifice that was successful for him. He's okay. He would get that anger, coldness, and little love would be replaced by the wonder the extravagant generosity and mercy and love of someone else for him. So he would imitate God. He'd behold it. He'd become it. And then finally, he'd pray his pain and encourage Job to keep doing it. He'd come alongside Job and say, keep going, brother. I am with you. I'm going to stay with you, and I'm going to help you pray your pain because... People who trust God, their life doesn't work sometimes. And we'll walk this together. Amen.